we're in a series in um, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and if you are uh, we're work, walk, walking through the Gospel of Matthew, but these chapters, chapter 5, 6, and 7, are, are called the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, the way that this sermon starts off at the beginning of chapter 5 is uh, Jesus starts off with what some refer to kind of as like a preamble. And, uh, and, and there's this sequence of phrases that might, you might be familiar with, maybe if you've read Matthew 5 before, or maybe you've just heard of the Beatitudes. And there are these various statements that Jesus makes, and what, what he's actually doing is he's, he's presenting, he goes up on a mountain and then sits down, which is what an authoritative teacher would do, and he sits down and then he gives us uh, all of these, these phrases. Uh, some say there's eight, some say there's nine, but there's these, these, these statements that are known as the Beatitudes. And what, what Jesus is actually saying is he's actually looking out the world and he's pointing out to his followers who are the flourishing people. And he's giving us a list of who are the flourishing people. That word uh, blessed, blessed are the, the poor in spirit, that, that word blessed could really be interpreted flourish, flourishing. Flourishing are the poor in spirit. And what Jesus gives us is this list that probably none of us would ever come up with. It, he's saying those are the flourishing ones. And we're like, wait, that doesn't sound like the flourishing ones. And Jesus says, yes, they are. And, and he gives, he gives his, his vision, his vision of the world, his vision of his kingdom, his vision of the good life. And then at the end of that preamble, he kind of transitions and he starts talking about his followers as salt and light. Uh, that what he wants his people to be in the world is for them. So instead of pointing out that's a flourishing person, that's a flourishing person, he transitions and he starts using the words you. And he looks at his followers and says, I want you to be the salt of the earth and you to be the light, uh, salt of the world, light of the world and salt of the earth. Um, and I want, I want you to have that kind of an impact on, on the world around you. And then Jesus moves into the meat of the sermon. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, Jesus tells us, if you had questions, he looks at his followers. It's like, if you had questions about what I'm doing with the law, the Old Testament, here's what I'm doing. I'm not getting rid of it. I'm not abolishing it. But I'm also not just restating it, like just saying it again or giving it a thumbs up. He's like, I've come to fulfill it, not to abolish it, not to just give it a thumbs up, but to fulfill it to turn the lights on, to, to take it to a new level, to reveal things about it that maybe people hadn't seen before. And what Jesus seems to indicate is that that demands a deeper, uh, a deeper righteousness, a deeper understanding of righteousness. Uh, and that's where he gets to in verse 20. Then he moves into these six statements, these antitheses, where he says, you've heard it said this way, but I say to you this. And last week, we just finished getting through those, those antithesis, where Jesus is saying, there's common knowledge, there's these, these cultural sayings. I, a couple times, I associated it with like maybe that yard sign that you have seen maybe in your yard or someone else's yard that says, in this house, we believe. And then there's a whole bunch of statements. And it's like Jesus is like taking up the yard sign of the first century Jewish person, and he's saying, you, you've, you've heard it said, and, and, and that, that might even be true, but... It's not going deep enough. You, you've heard it said, do not commit murder. I say to you, if you have anger in your heart, it's murder. You, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. That's right. Don't, don't, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look lustfully upon a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. And so Jesus is using these six antitheses to say, you, you, there's this common folk wisdom that you've kind of bought into. And you might even have come to the conclusion that that's what the Bible says. But I'm saying that that's, you're not going deep enough. And it's not just the Pharisees that he, or it's not just his followers or the Pharisees that Jesus is saying. It's, it's us too. The invitation is to us. Are, are, are we uh, going deep enough? 
you know, the religious leaders of the first century, they were convinced that they had kept the law based on their interpretation of it. And so that's what they did. They said, okay, uh, what's the sixth commandment? Uh, don't commit murder. Okay, then I won't, I won't literally kill anyone. And Jesus says, yeah, don't kill anyone. But to keep the sixth commandment, it would mean that you would actually deal with the anger of your heart. And so he's saying, you know, these religious leaders think that they're following it based on their interpretation, but I've got a deeper, uh, a deeper interpretation. And what he's talking about is what we've been referring to as whole person righteousness, that Jesus cares not just about what you do. He does care about what you do, but not just about what you do. He cares about your heart, whole person righteousness, inside out. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is really getting after. Uh, So today, we are in Matthew uh, part 25, um, and my shoe is untied and it's going to drive me nuts, so let me just take care of this. I was debating. Uh, Okay. Uh, So this is Matthew part 25, and uh, as we get to Matthew part 25, Jesus is, he is keeping us on on our toes here, Um, because if if you heard as Carol read the first verse of chapter 6, chapter five, he's just, he's like getting after us from all these different angles in regard to whole person righteousness. And he's like, that's what you need. You need righteousness. Verse 48, you have to be perfect like your father in heaven is perfect. That means whole. That word perfect means whole. And so he's saying that whole person righteousness, you got to be all the way down. It's got to be righteousness all the way down. So it's all this call to righteousness. And then what's verse one of chapter six? Beware of practicing your righteousness. What? Jesus, what, what is going on here? You know, righteousness, 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 and then beware of practicing your righteousness. And so Jesus is doing uh, what he always seems to do, which is to keep us uh, in this deep consideration that maybe there's more for us to learn from him. Maybe there's more for us to consider about how he's moving in the world. And, you know, it gives us the invitation to sit in the seat of the learner, uh, to be humble, to be curious, to be people who don't assume that we've got it all right that we actually are eager and open to to learning more about what Jesus has uh, invited us into. So as we look at these four verses, um, you know, you you, you probably noticed in the scripture reading, they talks about giving to the needy or giving to those in need. And so the three points today are expected giving, wrong giving, and joyful giving. So first, uh, expected giving. If you notice in verse two, um, what Jesus says is when you give to the needy, when you give to the needy. So that's not if you give to the needy. That is when you give to the needy. Jesus is expecting his followers to give to those who are in need when you give. And so Jesus is looking at his followers and being like, this is going to be natural. This is going to be something that if, if you're my follower, this is going to, it's just going to become part of how you move in the world. Jesus is saying this, this, this is expected when you give. Why? Why does Jesus say it that way? Why is it expected? Well, he's saying it's a natural, uh, uh, it's a natural gospel outflow. It's a natural outcome of the message of Jesus, that the more you understand who Jesus is and what he's done in the world, the more you're going to be an open-handed person. And so Jesus actually, with his followers, right off the bat, is like, this is going to mark us. This is going to uh, define us. This is going to be part of how we move in the world. Jesus is saying when we realize all we have has been given, then we become givers. When we realize that everything we've got in our life is a gift, then you are so much more ready to give it away. 
Followers of Jesus realize that they are entrusted with resources. Everything is a gift. The followers of Jesus are managers, not owners. And you might say, oh, man, I don't know. Like, you, you, you ought to look at my resume. You ought to look at how many hours I've worked. You, you need to look at my, especially early in my career, the amount of time I put in, uh, the wise investments I made. Like, I, I, you know, I think I, I, think I, I, think I earned this. Well, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, this is what Paul says to the church at Corinth. He says, it's chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, what do you have that you did not receive? And then if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? He says, everything you've got is a gift. That, that's, that's the message of the gospel. It's the message of the world. And if that's true, why are you acting as if you, you, like you, you earned it, that you have it? Uh, T- Tim Keller said, said this, if you have money, power, and status today, it is due to the fact of the century and place in which you were born, to the talents and capacities and health that you have, none of which you earned. All your resources are, in the end, a gift from God. And if you were to flesh this out or stretch this out, you know, what you would say is this. There's certain times in the world where if you are born with that skill set, you, you, you can make a lot of money with that skill set. If you were born at a different point in time in history, it would be worthless. So right now, you can make a lot of money if you are six foot eight and you are an athletic person and you can put a ball in a hoop. You can, you can make a lot of money doing that. For, for the majority of the history of the world, that, that actually didn't result in millions of dollars. That actually didn't result in, in wealth or riches. There's been plenty of times throughout the, the history of the world where being a math genius didn't bring you riches. It made you the, the odd person who had no friends. It, like, it, depending on when you were born, the, the century that you were born in, depending on who you were born to, do, do you think that you had a significant role in your IQ? We, we can maximize what we got, but man, like, you, you, you didn't get to pick your genes. God, God is the overseer of those things. So if you have money, power, and status today, it is due to the century and the place in which you were born, to the talents, capacities, and to your health, none of which you earned. And so there's this sense in which we can actually take this posture, especially as the people of God, and recognize that all of our resources are, in the end, a gift of God. So there's a natural question that flows then. Are you generous with your resources? If you realize that everything you have is a gift— that all you have has been given, then have you become a giver? Have you become generous with the resources that have been entrusted to you? Our resources, uh, the Bible would say, are not to be consumed completely on ourselves. And you've probably heard these stats over the years, and I, I don't know, it's, sometimes it's hard to find the most current stat, uh, but you know, there, there, there's, uh, throughout the course of, of time, there's, there's been this, this stat that's kind of like uh, the average American lives at like 106% of, of, their, uh, of their income, of their cost of, their, their cost of living is 106% of, of, what, of what they make. And it's one of the reasons why our nation, uh, which is the, most rich, the richest nation in the history of the world, also is carrying so much debt. Uh, because as much as we have, we often feel like we need more. And we're actually living above our means. And we're actually consuming all of our resources on ourselves. But that is not, that's not God's design for our resources, especially for his people. Our, our resources, if you were to survey the Bible, our, our resources are meant for 
ourselves or our biological families, that this is a right and appropriate use of our funds. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, there's a little discussion that Paul is having with his protege, Timothy, and he's talking actually about widows and the care for widows, and he talks about how the family should be engaged in caring for the widow, and we live in a broken world, and so that's, that's, that's one of the reasons why we have widows, and it's also one of the reasons why sometimes there's failure for the family to care for the widow. But Paul is talking to Timothy about this, and one of the things he says is if you don't care for your own household, he actually uses the phrase, you're worse than an unbeliever. He's saying, like, th- th- this is so out of bounds if you don't care for your own family. So, yes, God entrusts you with resources, and part of what you're supposed to do with those resources is to care for your family, for yourself and for your biological family. I, I do say, be, you know, be careful here, because how much is enough? How much, you know, just what I said a moment ago, the average American consumes more than they actually make, and we're the richest nation in the history of the world, and we feel like we need more, and we feel like we need more. Having said that, it's an appropriate use of your resources. Secondly, uh, our resources are meant for our spiritual family and the mission of God. There's many passages that we could point to here, but 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 show the, 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 the natural posture of the people of God to be participating in the mission of God, into actually fueling mission, to actually giving their money to see the local church and missions work flourish and, 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 and be successful and be well-funded. In Galatians chapter 6, we are told that, um, you know, do good to all, especially to the household of faith. And so there's this sense in which the people of God bond together and we, we work together to actually say, hey, these are things that we actually think are, are a blessing to our church family. We think these are things that are blessings to the world around us. We actually think that these things could reach the entire world. And so churches spend money to send ministry in places that will never, ever actually experience it all the way around the world. You know, some of you right now are going through a course called uh, Perspectives, and that's what part of what you're journeying into is this, this recognition that the mission of God is so rich and so beautiful, and that God is at work on all of these continents all over the place. And for some reason, this nation has been entrusted with a lot of financial resources. And one of the ways that we can participate with the mission of God is to actually financially contribute to our spiritual family and to the mission of God around the world. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing, and it's actually part of our spiritual worship. Third, so ourselves, our biological family, our spiritual family and the mission of God, and our neighbor— If you were to read Luke chapter 10 and the story of the Good Samaritan, you would see this on display where Jesus celebrates an individual who comes upon a person that they don't know, but who's beat up and in the ditch. And this, this Good Samaritan stops and helps them and pays all of their bills at great cost to himself gets him the help he needs, gets him to a, a place where he can be cared for, covers all of his medicine. Uh, and and, and that, that whole parable is Jesus answering the question, who is my neighbor? And he gives the answer to somebody you don't even know in the ditch. He's saying that the point is that everyone is your neighbor. And sometimes we hear everyone's your neighbor and it can like let us, you know, it's a get out of jail free card. It's like we think that somebody in Alabama is much my neighbor as, as the person across the street or beside my property. And it's like, well, that's true. But the person on your street is actually physically in front of you. And, and maybe they should have a little bit of a priority. What, what does it look like for you to love the people right here? 
What does it look like for you to care about the homeless population in Traverse City, that Safe Harbor, uh, I think today is, is uh, the launch day for Safe Harbor, our, our homeless shelter, that Brad Gerlach uh, you know, mans that ship and leads the charge there, and you know, what they do over these next months to provide and to help for a population that is in need of help. Like, that is right for us to care about. And the other ministry partners that we have that, that think about our neighbors here and, and some of the neighbors that are just completely forgotten. In the book of James, we are told that here is true religion, to care about the widow and the, and the, and the, the fatherless and the, and the poor, to, to have this sense of who is it that's in need? Like, th- this is true religion. This is part of it. This is part of what Jesus has called us to be about. And if you were here last week, uh, he finished chapter 5 by saying that we should love our enemies. And so this is, the, this is a, a sense in which we are, we are called to be participating in the flourishing of our city and the flourishing of our neighbors, even the ones that we don't get along with. And so as we look through our Bibles and we see the way that the, the, the Bible continually invites us to think about our resources, yes, yourself, and yes, your biological family, you know, your food and clothing, like God entrusts you with those things for, for a reason. But then there's this, this, this additional circle of our spiritual family and the mission of God, and then even another circle of those who we might not even know very well, maybe those who are even in the category of our enemy. As we think about the Bible, you know, the Old Testament, um, you know, if you were to read through the Old Testament and say, okay, what, is, what does the Old Testament say about my, my giving, my financial giving? Well, um, you know, some people are very eager to to say that the New Testament does not teach this idea of something called tithing. And the word tithe means a tenth. And so giving 10% of your income. And, uh, you know, a lot lot of people, including myself, say, hey, the New Testament does not teach tithing. It doesn't teach 10%. And I'm like, yeah, I I, I agree with you. Um, And somebody said, well, it it is in the Old Testament. And I said, well, let's talk about the Old Testament. Because if you do all the offerings which one of them is the tithe, you're over 30% of your income. So if you want to live in Old Testament, uh, you know, I can help you uh, organize your life that way uh, if, if, if you want to. Um, but the Old Testament talks about our financial engagement in a, in, a, in, in, in a variety of ways. There's various offerings, and then there's the tithe, and it's over 30% of the annual income. In the New Testament, it doesn't teach about percentages at all. The, the idea of tithing is not re- repeated in the New Testament, but that, that's because the posture is changed. That, that's because Jesus has come and everything's different. And so there's no more sense of like, what, what, what is the checklist? Did I hit 10%? Okay, I can check that box and now I've done my duty. Have I given these certain offerings when I've done these certain things? Check that box. Now, the New Testament is like, no, it's a whole new game. The motivation is, is so, so different because Jesus has actually already done it. And if he's already done it, now you're free to respond to that. You're, you're free to respond to that. You're, the, 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 big, the big idea is freedom. You're free to respond to it. You're free to be part of it. And so we get to come and think about our financial contributions with open hands. Uh, John, Jonathan Edwards, the uh, 18th century theologian, he said... Where have we any command in the Bible laid down in stronger terms, in more urgent terms, than the command of giving to the poor? He says there, there, is, there is no command that's laid down stronger than that command. And that, that, might, that might sound a little shocking to you. You might say, man, this seems like this is getting too high of a priority. Well, Jonathan Edwards says there's no command in the Bible that's laid down in stronger terms than that. 
But you know, in the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, it sees helping those in need not as charity, but actually as justice. The Bible puts this in the justice category. You see a lot of this in the Old Testament. One quick one would be in the gleaning laws. So when they would come to a field and you know, had their crops in the field, they were supposed to, to harvest that field in a way that left the corners unharvested so that the poor could come and get that grain for themselves, that they would intentionally leave some of the crop for, for, those, for those in need. And if you were saying, well, what, what does that have to do with anything today? What, what that means is this. In, in our culture, we live in a culture where companies and individuals squeeze every single drop we can get out of every single job opportunity, every single market. It's always a squeeze to see, can we pinch one more dollar? Can we get one more dollar? Can we get people to spend one more dollar? Can we get all of it for ourselves? How do we capture the market? All of it. And in the Old Testament, the people of God are actually told, no, no. You don't take all of it. You, you leave a portion. You, you leave a portion for those in need. In Micah chapter 6, uh, the, the, the prophets talk about this a lot. But in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, a very famous verse in the Old Testament, um, where we are called to, uh, to, uh, to do justice and to love mercy. And uh, I am partial to the view that sees those two things not as separate things, but as one thing. That doing justice and loving mercy, those two Hebrew words, mishpat and hased, that those two Hebrew words are actually playing together. And this concept that God has for his people is that they do justice and love mercy, that this is, this is like an approach to the world. Uh, a, 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 a Hebrew scholar named Bruce Waltke, this is, this is what he said you could sum up uh, parts of the Old Testament by saying, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. I'll read it again for you. The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. If we were to hop into the New Testament, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus is having, has had another one of his interactions with the Pharisees. And this is what he says about the Pharisees. He says they are full of greed and wickedness. And in Luke eleven forty two, 42, he says this, you tithe everything. You always do your 10%, even of your spices. You tithe everything. You are never off by a penny. You get it so right. You tithe every bit, but you neglect justice and the love of God. That's what Jesus says to them. You are full of greed and you're neglecting justice. There's this aspect of justice in which it's giving humans their due as people who are made in the image of God, that we look at, we look at our fellow humans, our neighbors, and we say, man, there is, a, there is a basic reality of care that should be provided. And for some reason, due to when I was born, who I was born to, the resources that I was given, my IQ, all of these things, I have, I have some resources. And, and this person, my neighbor, doesn't have resources. And the invitation is for me to actually care about that and to actually do justice and love mercy and to say that person deserves food and that person deserves shelter and that person deserves clothes. And James says, if you run into somebody and you see them and they're naked and they're hungry and you just say, I'll pray that you get some clothes. I pray that you get some food. Now we're going to talk about prayer next week and I, pr prayer is no small thing. 
That's no small thing at all. But James says you don't stop there. You provide the food. You provide the clothes. This is in that category of a justice issue. If this person is made in the image of God, there's a basic dignity that is due them. And we as the people of God should be leading the way on that front. Uh, Tim Keller, in, in, in his same work, it's called Generous Justice. It's, a, it's not on our book wall right now, but it, it has been in the past. He says that the Bible offers three causes for poverty. Three. Uh, oppression, tragedy, and personal or moral failure. That there's three causes in the pages of the Bible. It, it could be that some, you know, in, the, in this culture, they didn't have insurance for their crops. And so if a storm came in and wrecked everything, they, they could be impoverished. It, it could be life-changing. And there was no insurance company to pay for the crop that they lost. Like calamity could be the reason that someone's in poverty. Personal responsibility, personal moral failure could be a reason why someone is in poverty. They're not managing themselves well. They're not making good decisions. They're not, they're not they're, you know, the, the things that they have been entrusted to, they're, they're, they're fumbling them. Another cause could be oppression, that they're actually under the, the, the thumb of a greater power. And so as the Old Testament deals with poverty, it's not a one-trick pony. And, and we're tempted to be one-trick ponies. So, some of us are really tempted to look at the poverty community and be like, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Let's get going. Get a job and keep one. And our thought is personal responsibility. They got to get it together. You might be a person here who thinks it's the government's fault. It's policies. We need to get better policies. That, that's what's holding people back. Maybe you think it's a form of, of oppression. The Bible is not that simplistic. The Bible would say we at least need all three. We'll probably need more, but at least all three need to be given attention if we're going to try to tackle the issue of, of poverty. Uh, the, the Bible would tell us to not be so sure that we know how the Bible would play out in public policy. That's, that's the point. And so as we think about where we're at and who we are as the people of God, this invitation to actually care about the needs of those who are hurting. So be careful that you do not excuse your role in helping those in need. Jesus expects his followers to see the world in a dramatically different way. So be generous. But generosity is, is not enough. As Jesus has shown throughout the Sermon on the Mount, this is part of his point. It's not just about what you do. It's about your heart. And that's what Jesus wants to tackle here. It, he just said to the Pharisees, you guys nail it. You do your tithes. You check your boxes. And it, it, it's not right. It's not right. Your, your hearts are not right. Jesus wants to get deeper than just what we do. So be generous, but Jesus has more to say than just how much you give. So point two, wrong giving. Jesus assumes that his followers are going to give to those in need, but he doesn't want them to give to those in need with wrong motives. Now there's a bunch of reasons, and they might be racing through your mind right now. There are a bunch of reasons that we get kind of sideways or worked up about our giving, uh, especially when we think about giving to those in need. Uh, some people, you might be hearing this, and you might be feeling some level of fear for yourself. You might be saying, man, if I try to help others, who's going to provide for me? Like, I am scraping. I am, I am trying to just, I'm trying to make it. I'm trying to get by. It's an understandable question. And in a couple weeks, Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, uh, Jesus has something to say about that. This is, this is what he says. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you shall eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? 
So, so Jesus, Jesus understands the anxiety that you might feel about basic needs. Uh, maybe you have concerns that your gift won't actually help anybody, or it will enable bad behaviors. Uh, again, a book, I don't think it's on our book wall right now, but a book that we've had on there in the past is a book called When Helping Hurts. And it's an organization that has spent a lot of time asking the questions, we want to be generous towards the, the, the communities that are in need, but we want to be generous in a way that actually helps them, that doesn't enable uh, unfortunate or negative things to continue. So if that's a concern, I, I understand. And then, honestly, greed, selfishness. You want more. You want more stuff. You want more comfort. You want more freedom. You want more margin. And if you're going to give money away, that's going to slow that whole train down. So there's, there's a whole bunch of reasons why people get sideways in their giving. But don't miss that Jesus draws attention to only one here. I'm not saying the other ones aren't real. I'm saying here he only draws attention to one. And the one that he draws attention to is ego. And he says, don't give in a way that is about impressing other people. That has to do with self-promotion. He says in verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Verse 2, when you give to the need, uh, uh, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Jesus says, look, here's the motive I want to point to in this text. Your ego, your self-promotion. Now, this is probably hyperbole, when Jesus says, you know, trumpets blaring, I, I don't know that he necessarily means literal trumpets blaring, but his point is super clear. Don't give to those in need in order to be praised by others because that is what the hypocrites do. And that word hypocrite, it, it's related to an actor who's wearing a mask and it's saying one thing and doing something else. Hypocrites say one thing while they're doing another. And see, G Jesus, he cares about your heart and he cares about your heart's motivation. He talked about anger. He talked about lust. Now he's talking about giving. And this is a long-standing problem for the Pharisees. In John chapter 12, Jesus says to the Pharisees that they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from the Lord. No matter what they said or did, their motives were wrong. At one point in time in John chapter 5, Jesus says to them, you know, you, you, you guys, you, you, uh, you study the scriptures like crazy, but you want the praise of someone else. You, you, you won't turn to me. You, you, won't, you, won't, you won't see me. You're after something lesser. You're after impressing other people. That's what hypocrites do. And I think we can agree that the problem is not just with the Pharisees, but it's with us too. If, if this is the motive for giving, then guess what? Jesus says, you're probably going to get what you're looking for. You're probably going to get it. So you want to give to get, impress others? You can, you, like, that works. You'll get it. You will get it, and that then is your reward. In other words, if you want to give to impress other people, you can probably do that, but that's all you'll get. That's all that comes from that. That is the reward. So don't deceive yourself into believing that you're doing this good thing for some person in need or for the Lord when you're really doing it for self-promotion. Jesus says that if you do it publicly, then you're probably doing it for your own reputation. So how does Jesus suggest that we do give? Third point, joyful giving. He uses this phrase in verse 3. 
He says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, I actually think that this phrase would be really, really fun to, to, to play with more. But, but let, me, let me just try to give what I think is happening here. Um, I think it's pointing at two things. I think it's pointing uh, at, at self-sacrifice and at self-forgetfulness. And just like Jesus did not literally mean trumpets in verse 2, I don't think he literally means that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. In other words, you're, you're just like apparently like throwing money out the car window and like you're, you don't know that you're doing that, but you're doing that or you're writing checks that cause your mortgage check to bounce. Or, like I, 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 he's, he's saying, um, I, like I, th- I think this is his point. His point is this, you're, the right hand was the active hand in their culture, that was the, what you did your action with. The, the, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. I think it's saying this. Be a little crazy. Be a little crazy. There, there is a sense here of self-sacrifice, a, a little shock and awe, a little sense in which it's if, the, if, the, if, if there's, this, uh, there's this giving that you're doing, it's, like, it's almost like, there's a, uh, uh, like you're, not, you're not telling yourself the whole story about how much you're giving. It's almost like, can, can, can you believe we just did that? Can, can you believe we just, we just wrote that check? Can you believe we just got to be part of that thing? Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, this is what Paul says. The point is, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And I think that this, don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing, or don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing, I think it's, it's saying like, almost like this kind of uh, excitement, like almost like an, an excitement about what you're giving. And it's a, it's a sense of self-sacrifice. It's like, we get, we get to do that. Like, we get to uh, like, go for it. We get to reach. We get to stretch. The right hand was the active hand. The left hand doesn't know. I think the second thing it's saying is that this is a call to do you know, to give, and then to move on. There's a sense of self-forgetfulness here. It's almost like you don't even remember. So if, if the first sense of this is like, there's almost like this excitement that it's like, whoa, 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 what's going on here? What's going on? The, the, this one is like, uh, I, oh yeah, I forgot. We, we did do that uh, last year. There, there's a sense in which it's like uh, a self-forgetfulness that you get to be part of, being, of meeting these needs but you don't sit around and dwell on it. Maybe you could say it this way. Jesus says you don't give to impress others, and guess what? You don't give to impress yourself. You don't give and then sit around for a few weeks just mulling over how great your gift was and, you know, and like just thinking, man, I'm pretty, I'm pretty good at this. <laughs> look, 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 look at me. Like there, there's a sense in which you do it, and then, and then you, you move on. You, you move on with your life. Because it's not, money doesn't own you. Money's not the center of, of who you are. You give and you give generously, but then you move on with your life. Self-sacrifice and self-forgetfulness. Now, you might say, you know, this all sounds good, but I don't want to. This all sounds really good, but I, I don't want to give that money. I don't, I don't want to help those in need. Some of you will sit here and say, I don't want to, um, and so I won't. Some of you might sit here and say, I don't want to, but, uh, you know, okay, fine. Um, I, you know, I guess I have to obey, G- obey Jesus, so I guess, I, okay, I don't want to, but, but, but I'll do it. 
I don't want you to miss that this whole text is about the fact that Jesus cares about your heart. He cares about your motivation. This is not primarily about a technique. It's not primarily about a percentage. It is Jesus saying, I really do care about what's going on in your heart more than I care about the size of the gift. I care more about what's going on in your heart than what the public thinks. I care more about what's going on in your heart than what you think. Like, I care about what's going on in your heart, your heart's motivation. So what does the Bible offer us for motivation? Well, this is how Jesus ends this little section. He says, to give in secret, to do it in secret from the heart, and guess what? The Father will reward you. So Jesus looks at his followers and says, it's not about the size of the gift. It's it's not about the fanfare. It, It is, here's what I want you to do. I, you know, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 says this, like, decide in your heart and then do it. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing, but do, do it in secret. Just, just do it. Just do it and don't, don't do it for, for, for the fan, fanfare. Don't, don't do it for the acclaim. Do it in secret and the Father will reward you. Do you see he says that in verse 4? And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Not might, your father will reward you. Proverbs 19:17 says, "Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed." Can you could, could you I mean, can you just with me try to adjust our thinking that when we help the poor, it's like giving a loan to the Lord and he'll repay that? That, that is not generally how we think about giving uh, at all, let alone to, to the poor. The Father will reward you. How? Well, you know, I think we all know how TBN tells you, you know, how, how television preachers tell you that you give money, God will give you money. Maybe. How, how will the Lord repay you? Maybe finances. Maybe finances. But you know what? Maybe something far better. You, you, you think that God giving you money is the best gift? You think that's the best pitch? You think that's the best option on the table for God? No way. You, you, are, you are aiming way too low if you were to ever think that obedience to God would result in financial gain. That is so low. You are shooting way too low. In Matthew chapter 6, in just a few, chap- a few verses, Jesus says the, that rust comes and moths destroy this material goods. We are so addicted to it in our culture that we would think that if we obeyed God, that the best thing we could ever get back is money? Maybe. But man, I hope you're praying with me that it's something better than that. Because you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that money is a gift, but like every gift, it can be distorted. That money whispers all kinds of promises to us that money cannot keep. When Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he actually says that money is a trap. And the word that he uses is this word for a bird trap. And that bird trap was a noose. And the idea is that the bird gets its leg in that, in that rope and it pulls. And as that bird tries to get away, what happens with a noose? It gets tighter and tighter. 
And Paul says to Timothy, watch out for riches because it's a trap. It's a noose. It gets tighter and tighter and tighter. It doesn't bring you what you think it'll bring you. And so when you hear Jesus say, if you give to the poor, your father will reward you, and your mind went to, oh, this is an investment strategy. If I give God $10, he'll give me 100 That's what you hear on TV. I know. I'm telling you, you're shooting way too low. Even if God does that, that's not the best thing. The father will reward you, but maybe, hopefully, with something far better, and that's himself. That you would actually get him what if the repayment from the Lord is the Lord? So Psalm, Psalm 63 says this. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. You, know, you run into somebody in that situation who's starving to death, who, who has no water, and you give them a $2,000 check, that's worthless to them. And the psalmist says that, you, you, I don't want money, I want you. That's what my soul longs for. I want something better than money. The Lord is what your soul has been longing for, whether you know it or not. Let, let, let me close with, with just a couple thoughts here on the fact that the way Jesus ends this is he says, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And your father. Jesus says, your father. How is it that the God of heaven becomes your father? Well, in 1 John chapter 3, John writes this. Behold what kind of love the Father has given to un unto us that we should be called the children of God and so we are. John says, you want to know how in the world you can be called the children of God? You want to know how in the world you could actually refer to him as Father? You want to know how? You have to behold the love that he's poured out. What, what's the beholding? What's John talking about? He's talking about Jesus Christ. The love that the Father has given to us is Jesus on our behalf. You see, unless I realize that Jesus Christ gave up everything and became afflicted and destitute and fatherless so that I might be welcomed in and adopted and accepted, unless I realize that, then I will never be able to live with a self-sacrificing, self-forgetful generosity. Unless you see that Jesus gave up everything. You, you know, he had nowhere to lay his head. At the end of his life, he rode on a borrowed donkey. He ate in a borrowed room. He used a, a, a borrowed grave. The only material thing that Jesus had at the end of his life was a robe, and they mockingly made bids for it. On the cross... The cruel cross, Jesus gave up his life. But on that cross, he actually looked at the Father and said, why have you forsaken me? Jesus came and lost everything so that we could be brought in. You have to tell your heart to behold what kind of love the Father has given to us, that you and I could be called sons and daughters, that we could refer to the Father as the Father, that we could be rich in the only way that matters. 
when this happens, you will never see money the same way again. It changes the way you see your net worth. Your net worth in dollars is nothing compared to your net worth and what the, the, the love that the Father has poured out for us. When this happens, you'll never see the poor the same way again. It reveals that material poverty um, is, is something that I, I, can, I can actually relate to. My, that material poverty is like my spiritual poverty. When this happens, you'll never see yourself the same way again. So I want to close with some paragraphs that we've read plenty of times here, and we're going to read them plenty more. And this is from a little booklet called uh, A Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent, and this is what he says. Like nothing else could ever do, the gospel instills in me a heart for the downcast, the poverty-stricken, and those in need of physical mercies, especially when such persons are of the household of faith. When I see persons who are materially poor, I instantly feel a kinship with them, for they are physically what I was spiritually when my heart was closed to Christ. Perhaps some of them are in their condition because of sin, but so was I. Perhaps they are unkind when I try to help them, but I too have been spiteful to God when he has sought to help me. Perhaps they are thankless and even abuse the kindness I, I show them. But how many times have I been thankless and used what God has given to me to serve selfish ends? Perhaps a poverty-stricken person will be blessed and changed as a result of some kindness I show him. If so, God be praised for his grace through me. But if the person walks away unchanged by my kindness, then I still rejoice over the opportunity to love as God loves. Perhaps the person will repent in time, but for now, my heart is chastened and made wiser by the tangible depiction of what I myself have done to God on numerous occasions. The gospel reminds me daily of my spiritual poverty into which I was born and also of the staggering generosity of Christ towards me. Such reminders instill in me both a felt connection to the poor and a desire to show them the same generosity that has been lavished on me. When ministering to the poor with these motivations, I not only preach the gospel to them through word and deed, but I reenact the gospel to my own benefit as well. Yeah, as we come to this table, we are reminded that Jesus gave everything for us to be brought in that this bread representing the body broken for us, this cup represents his blood spilled for us, and we are invited to see this rescue that Jesus has provided. We are invited to behold what love the Father has poured out on us. Jesus has given us more than we could ever imagine. If you're a Christian, man, this meal makes all the sense in the world. You've actually received that rescue of Jesus. So come up here and get the bread and get the cup. If you're not a Christian, there will be a couple of prayers on the screen, uh, and that they're just meant for language to help you maybe have a conversation with God uh, that maybe you need to have. If our service will please come, let's, let's pray. God, thank you uh, so much for your kindness to us. Thank you for uh, the gift of, of Christ. God, we, we look at our lives and we recognize that probably almost all of us, most of us in this room drove here in a car. We're all wearing clothes. We all probably have already eaten something for, for, for food today. Uh, we probably have some sort of uh, uh, paycheck or some money in the bank, some confidence of provision for the rest of this day. God, we, we, we have many, many things that we could be thankful for, but they all pale. They all pale in comparison to what Jesus has done on our behalf. So God, would you fill us with hearts full of gratitude? Would you help us to see that we're already rich in the only way that matters? And that, that, that just opens our hands. God, we want to be part of your mission in the world. We want to see those who are hurting be helped. Would you use us?
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.